Let me begin this morning just asking you a question. How many of you have ever experienced the the joys and the travails of home remodeling? Yeah, this is good. And I can connect with a, a large number of you out there. We've had several remodeling projects in our home over the years that we've lived there. Most recent was a bathroom. It's always a delight to go through a remodeling project, isn't it? You, you have to seal off a part of your home. You can't use it anymore. In comes the contractor with only basically one tool called a hammer. And they just start tearing stuff out. They knock holes in your walls. They rip down your ceiling. They tear up your floors. Then they get out the sawzall and they start working with that too. And wow, that whole process of remodeling begins with demolition, doesn't it? You can't remodel anything without first demolishing that which needs to be remodeled. And that demolition process is is dusty and it's dirty and sometimes it's discouraging. Seems like that was perfectly good stuff and I don't understand why that has to go out to the dumpster too. Why can't we just use that? And and you, you understand what I'm talking about, right? Yes, indeed. Well, beginning next week, I want to build for us a view of the kingdom of Jesus Christ that is going to be so spectacular, so glorious, so appealing that it's going to pop your eyes out. But before I can do that, we need to do some demolition work. So today is Demolition Sunday. Demolition Sunday. And once we have gutted the place... And I'm talking about our lives now. (laughs) Then we can begin to really remodel it and build it and see it the way God would want us to see it. I am persuaded, beloved, that we don't long for the kingdom of Jesus Christ like we ought to. That we don't give it enough thought. We don't give it enough attention. And I think there are can be several reasons for that. One of them clearly could be ignorance. We, we don't really know what it is, and so it's hard for us to long for something that we don't really know what it is that we want. It may be for others of us that it's just neglect. We've allowed over time that which we know to be true to slide to the back burner in our lives, and, and thus our passion for the kingdom of Jesus Christ has waned. I have a further thesis here, and that is that our understanding of heaven is really an understanding of the kingdom. And that, in fact, the Old Testament gives us such a spectacular view of the kingdom of Jesus Christ as an illustration of what heaven really is all going to be about. So the better we understand the coming kingdom, the reign of the king, the better we will understand heaven and the eternal state. I think these two things are tied together. And so what I want to do, beginning this morning with the demolition part, is to try to tear down those old understandings 
to lay our hearts bare before the Word of God so that we might abandon that which we are clinging to that is false, that which we are clinging to that cannot satisfy. And then beginning next week, allow the Word of God to begin to paint this picture for us. And it is a glorious picture indeed. In some senses, I see this as kind of the highlight, the high point of this whole series on things to come. The Bible sees it that way. It is the coming kingdom of Messiah. It is the unifying theme in many ways of the Word of God. So this morning we've got two hard realities that we must deal with. We must come face to face with so that we will begin to desire the kingdom of Jesus Christ as we ought to. Two hard realities. The first is that the kingdom has not yet come. The kingdom has not yet come. That may be a little hard in some senses for us to understand. I mean, we might agree with that with our with our mouths, but our lives don't necessarily support what we profess with our mouths. Because many of us spend a good bit of our time and energy building a kingdom here on earth. We're busily about trying to erect a kingdom here on earth, beloved, that cannot last and will not last. And in the process of doing that, we lose sight of what really is important. You know, the Apostle Paul, he makes that crazy statement where he says, momentary light afflictions are producing for me an eternal weight of glory. Oh, wow, that's a great verse in the Bible. <laughs> momentary light afflictions? Paul, what is it? What are your momentary light afflictions? Well, let's see. I was flogged. I spent a day and a night in the deep. I've been in danger from countrymen. I've been imprisoned. I've nearly been beheaded. And ultimately, I was. The momentary light afflictions, he says, they're nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory. There's a man who had his eyes on the coming kingdom. And his eyes on the coming kingdom. Beloved, the kingdom's not here yet. It's just not here yet. And let me demonstrate that for you. The book of Malachi, the book of the prophet Malachi, is the last book in the Old Testament. It's the final written revelation of God from the Old Testament. It was penned by the prophet Malachi sometime around 425 B.C. This prophecy is a severe critique and criticism of the people of God, the ancient nation of Israel, who has returned from the Babylonian captivity. But in the hundred years or so since their return, their hearts have grown cold and complacent. And so Malachi speaks to them very sharply, very directly, and he calls them to repentance. 
And then he puts down his pen. Then he puts his pen down. And when Malachi puts his pen down, the written revelation of God, the prophets of God cease speaking. No more voice from God. The last thing the nation hears is a message of judgment, a strong call to repentance. And we enter what theologians call the 400 silent years. The 400 silent years. That is the period of time between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New. 400, a little over 400 years. No word from God. No prophet in the land. God's quiet. He's not speaking. Now, during this period of time, the prophecies of the of Daniel come to fulfillment, the Medo-Persian Empire, which was in control of the known world at that time, at the time of Malachi, finishes out its reign. It, it falls to the empire of Greece. The empire of Greece falls to the empire of Rome. Everything Daniel said would happen during these 400 silent years, it works its way out. And then the New Testament opens. God again speaks. And he speaks through a prophet again. In fact, a prophet that Jesus said is the greatest of the prophets. Do you remember that? Of all those born of a woman, there is no prophet greater than who? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. He emerges from nowhere. He, he appears out of the wilderness, dressed in a camel robe and a big leather belt and, and locust you know, legs hanging out of his teeth. <laughs> he appears on the scene. And the first recorded words from the mouth of a prophet of God to the people of God are repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the forerunner. This is the one sent before the king. This is the herald. This is the one who says, level the high places, fill up the ditches, make the road straight. King is coming. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Close by another way to translate it. And so John begins to speak and the people come out and are baptized. And, and John's arrested. He's arrested, isn't he? He's arrested because he's so, so bold. He confronts the authorities where they don't want to be confronted. He loses his head over it. And from the time of John's imprisonment, Matthew's gospel tells us, Matthew chapter 4, from the time of John's imprisonment, Jesus begins his great Galilean ministry. That is his great preaching ministry in the north part of Israel. And Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17 records the first spoken word of Messiah. That which has been recorded for us. His first address to the nation. 
His first public appearance, as it were. His first sermon. What's his message? It's a familiar message. It's repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because I'm the king. The king is here. And you'll know that the king is here because my message is in full accordance with the prophets who have gone before me and I do kingdom miracles. As I go about the land, I do kingdom miracles. The the blind receive sight, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the dead are raised. Water is turned to wine. Food is multiplied. Sickness is banished. King is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is right before you. It is in your midst. In the person of the king himself. Now think with me. Think with me here a minute. When John and Jesus begin their preaching ministry... And they begin it with a repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is upon you. There is a certain presupposition that they have a certain pre-understanding. That they expect their audience to have. When they say the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is here. They expect their people to understand what the kingdom is. They never stop. And say to the people, well, maybe you don't really know what I'm talking about. Let me explain that to you. Not at all. In fact, for those who seem confused or unwilling, their response is, have you not read? Have you not read? That is, you should know. You should know what I'm talking about when I say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Where would they receive their understanding, their training to prepare them to receive this message? Where would it come from? It's a question like who's buried in Grant's tomb, right? The only place they could know would be from their Old Testament. These are the people steeped in the Word of God in the Old Testament. Their understanding of kingdom can only be built up from the pages of the Old Testament. When the prophet of God opens his mouth after 400 years of silence and says the kingdom is at hand, the lights go on, or should. When Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he demonstrates it with miracle upon miracle, kingdom miracles, the lights should go on. Matthew chapter 6. Don't turn there yet. We're going to get somewhere soon here. I'm warming up. Matthew chapter 6 and in verse 10 would land you right in the middle of what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer, actually probably better name, the Disciples' Prayer. 
teach us to pray, Rabbi. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. First prayer request. Thy kingdom what? Come. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. First prayer request. First prayer request for the disciples is that the kingdom of God would come to this earth. And that the kingdoms of this world, which are presently in open and defiant rebellion, where the will of God is not being done here on this earth, that they would be crushed with the stone cut without hands, Daniel chapter 2, that crushes the, the feet of Daniel's statue, you remember this, And then grows to be a mountain that fills the whole earth. Righteousness prevails as water covers the sea. The prophet Isaiah says. And God, your will is done. Here on earth. As it is in heaven. How is the will of God done in heaven? It is done instantly. It is done perfectly. It is done willingly. Yet here on earth, the nations rage. They say we will not have this man to rule over us. But beloved, when the kingdom comes, when the king comes, he will crush the rebellion and he will bring in his kingdom. Should we continue to pray the disciples' prayer? Yes. Yes. Open your Bibles up to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, page 1087. Some might say, well, okay, the, the Jewish people, they misunderstood the kingdom that he was talking about. In fact, they were, they were just looking for a political ruler, somebody to overthrow Rome, and, and he wasn't their man, and so they crucified him. And you know what? There is some truth to that. There is some truth to that. But that's not all there is. And Jesus doesn't redefine it for them. He doesn't say to them, well, you silly boobs. You're looking for this physical kingdom with a political ruler who's going to overthrow Rome. You silly people, you shouldn't believe Daniel so literally like that. You see, the, the kingdom of God is within us. It's a spiritual thing. It is spiritual. It is spiritual. Repent is a spiritual word. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But it's physical too. It's physical too. First chapter of the book of Acts. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, that is, the Gospel of Luke, until the day when he was taken up after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Verse 3. 
To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. Check it out. And speaking of the things concerning the, what? Kingdom of God. This many. 40 days. 40 days. The resurrected Christ spent with his apostles, teaching them about the kingdom of God. Seems to me that they should have a pretty good understanding by that point, don't you think? At least any major misconceptions, he would have cleared them up. Would you grant me that? Verse 6. And so when they had come together... They were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Is it now, Lord, that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You silly disciples. For 40 days I've been telling you that the kingdom of God, is, see, it's, it's inside you. It's a spiritual thing. Is it now, Lord, you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's not for you to know the time. Not silly. He's not restoring a kingdom to the nation of Israel. They rejected me, remember? Therefore, their promises have been withdrawn and it's all gone to the new church, the new Israel. All of those Old Testament promises, they're all gone. They were forfeited. It's not what he says. He says it's not for you to know the time or the season when it comes. But you, verse 8, shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. You will, it's not for you to know when. What you are to do is be my witnesses. Okay? Go all the way to Acts chapter 28. The end of the book. How did they do, by the way? How did they do as witnesses? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. Did they make it? According to Luke, they did. Because when we arrive at the last chapter of the book of Acts, verse 30, 31 dealing in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, he is now in the capital city of Rome. Beloved, this is the ends of the earth. This is it. They've arrived. I don't have the time to trace the message, by the way, but if you have a concordance, you trace it. You trace the preaching of the kingdom of God through the book of Acts. But when I get to the end here, it says, And he, that is Paul, stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all that came to him, preaching, what? The kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. What was his message? 
It's the same message that for 40 days the other apostles were instructed in. It, was the mes- it is the message of the Old Testament. Beloved, I'm, I'm here to tell you it is the message of the Bible. And that is Messiah's kingdom is coming. It's coming. Now, what is the obvious conclusion to all this? The obvious conclusion to all of this is that Messiah's kingdom has not yet come. It's not here. It's not here. The earth remains under the curse. Lest we forget. Then he said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Is that still true? That's still true. It's true at my house. Continues to amaze me. I plant three tomato plants. I apply fertilizer and water. They produce some tomatoes. There's another section of ground not very far away from that which receives neither fertilizer nor water and produces the most abundant harvest of thorns, those big goat head thorns that that you can imagine. I don't plant them there. In fact, periodically I dig them up, roots and all. Kingdom's not here. It is not here. This world remains broken and in fact it is not even neutral it's definitely not getting better it is not even neutral it is getting worse and so like it or not listen to me now like it or not to try to find satisfaction in this life is a fool's errand it is a fool's errand And nowhere is that reality better portrayed than in the book of Ecclesiastes. So I'm going to turn you over there. Page 671. Ecclesiastes. A series of, at least for my purposes this morning, biblical illustrations of this reality. That the kingdom is not here. This book is penned by Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, the Scripture tells us. Not just historically, but even going forward, the wisest man. And in this book, he records in the most stark language truth about life this side of Messiah's kingdom. What is life like before the kingdom gets here? Well, let me just lift a few illustrations out of this book for you. How about chapter 2, beginning in verse 18? By the way, the, uh, the re- refrain of this book is, 
Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Futility of futilities, all is worthless. Some people don't know how to understand this book and it turns them in theological knots. I actually like this book. I like people who speak directly. Don't gloss it over. Solomon doesn't do that here. Verse 18, chapter 2. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. I work hard my whole life I save. I put away in my 401k. I pay down my home mortgage and build equity in my home. I put money in a savings account. I make investments along the way. I accumulate an estate. Isn't this the American way? And then I die and leave it to a fool. Sorry. (laughs) Hypothetically speaking. I spent a number of years in commercial banking. One of the caveats of banking is lending to second-generation business owners is inherently risky. First generation, not so bad. Second generation, lending to the kids who have inherited the business from dad is a very dangerous loan to make. They got no equity in the deal. They didn't build it. They didn't pour their sweat into it. It was given to them on a silver spoon and half of them turned out to be fools. That's all Solomon's observing. Life, this side of the kingdom. Listen to me, beloved, you work your whole life. And you leave it to your kids and they squander it. Solomon says, this too is vanity. How about this one? Chapter 3, verse 18. And I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts, it is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. What is he saying? What he's saying is you're going to die like a dog. I mean, I wish I could put it more gently to you, but you're going to die like a dog. You don't know when. You don't know the circumstances that are surrounded. But the breath of life that is in you and is in and is your dog, Fido, is identical in that sense and is going to be withdrawn and you are both going to die. From the dust you were drawn to the dust you will go. Death is unavoidable. You cannot ignore it. You cannot escape it. And this too is vanity. Why would we spend our lives trying to build a kingdom when you're not going to be around to enjoy it. You might leave it to a fool and you might just drop dead before you finish. How about this one? Chapter 4, verse 1. 
Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, and they had no one to comfort them. Over to chapter 5, verse 8. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. What is Solomon saying? What he is saying is that oppression and corruption are everywhere. What he's saying is that politicians are, for the most part, corrupt. told you I like plain speakers. Let me give it to you plain. There is no salvation in a political party. There is no party of God. God is not Republican and God is not Democrat and God is not independent. Two and a half, three years ago, this country was clamoring to throw the bums out. Those bums happen to be Republican because they were feathering their own nest, filling their own, lining their own pockets with their own corruption. And so in a great groundswell, we swept into power a new president, a majority of Democratic senators and a majority of Democratic congressmen. That really fixed things. They're corrupt too. One official watches over the other official. They cover their backs. The head of the IRS doesn't pay his taxes. The chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee doesn't pay his taxes. You try not paying your taxes. You try it. The system's broken. It is broken. And it's broken not just here. It is broken everywhere you go, every country you're in. It's more apparent in some countries than others, but it's broken across the board. People in power oppress those that aren't. There are two kinds of justice in the world. There is the justice that the rich get, and there is the justice for the poor. And it is not identical. It's not. This too is vanity. It's vanity. Chapter 4, verse 4. And I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is, and an NASB has the result of in italics, and I wish they hadn't because I don't think it belongs in there, so I'm going to read it without it. Without it. So let me read it without that italics to you. Verse 4, chapter 4. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. What is he talking about? He's saying that In this life, this side of Messiah's kingdom, success, rather than being met with praise and gratitude, is met with envy. Envy. When the guy gets a promotion at work, the gal gets a promotion at work, her co-workers are envious. Oh, they might on the surface pat her on the back and say, job well done. But when they go home, they grumble and say, I can't believe she got that promotion or he got that. But they didn't deserve it. I'm more deserving than them. He says the whole thing is a result of rivalries. Rivalries. 
Envy instead of praise. America is such a great place, right? The American dream. Work hard, grow wealthy, and have everybody hate you. Because that's what happens. That's what happens. Nobody rejoices that you worked hard and grow wealthy. What they want to do is drag you down. Because that's the way the world is. That's the way it is. Chapter 4, verses... A couple will go. Chapter 4, verse 13. I'm already realizing that... I don't know. Anyway, chapter 4, verse 13. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him, for this too is vanity and striving after the wind. What is he talking about? What he's talking about very simply is that fame is transient. Fame is transient. In the illustration here, it says that there was this poor lad who came out of prison and he was wiser than the existing king and therefore the people flocked to him. But it wasn't long before a second lad replaces him. Fame is transient. Doesn't last. Glory is not forever. Ask any professional quarterback. You are only as good as your last game. Particularly if you're a Fairweather fan like me. <laughs> Trade the bum. Right? I believe it was Joe Namath who said, I'm either in the penthouse or the outhouse. Week to week. It's hard to play football in New York. Beloved, this is life. This is life. If you're a big shot now, it's transient. won't last. Someone else will come along and knock you off. Yet we give ourselves to this stuff. Right? We pursue this. We have a, we have a thirst for it. It's like seawater. The more we drink it, the more we want it. It's just not going to last. Maybe a summary statement here over in chapter 1, verse 15. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Translation? You and I can't fix what's really messed up. The world is full of bent nails, and you cannot straighten them. You cannot straighten them. And nor can any politician. They'll promise you, but they can't do it either. Only, listen to me, only when Messiah returns and begins the reign of the king. Only at that point will this messed up planet be turned right side up again. And only then. And only then. 
Grab two fistfuls of life and squeeze as hard as you can. And then open and take a look at what you've got. Because like two handfuls of jello, the harder you squeeze it, the less you'll have. There's nothing here. There's nothing here. Life cannot satisfy. Can't. Because the kingdom's not here. It's not here. We are pilgrims. We are aliens. We are travelers. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Second. Second. The second hard reality that we need to come face to face with, not only that the kingdom is not yet here, has not yet come, but secondly, not everyone will enter the kingdom. Not everyone will enter the kingdom. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. But many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons, in your name perform miracles, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Not everyone will enter the kingdom. Messiah is coming. Amen? He's coming. And when he comes, he will establish his kingdom. We call it a millennial kingdom. It's from the Latin. means a thousand. It comes from Revelation chapter 20. The thousand year reign or kingdom. The millennial kingdom. It's coming. But who are its citizens? Who are its citizens? The answer to that question requires us to piece together a number of different Scripture passages. I put a handout in your bulletin, and I think, well, certainly the skeleton of everything I'm going to say is there. I believe most of the Scripture references are there. So I'm not going to look at every single one of them with you just now. And some of this is review of things that we've been plowing over. This whole series builds on itself. Uh, if If you miss for some reason, it would benefit you to... Go online, download it, listen, because we are building. We are building. So I'm going to be dragging up some things that we've talked about in weeks and even, now case, months gone by. But I want to turn you to Revelation chapter 20. So go ahead and turn there, page 1240. That'll be our launch point. So we answer the question, who are the citizens? This is a really key passage, by the way, and helps to unlock... A number of different Old Testament passages with regard to resurrection. Chapter 20, Revelation chapter 20, page 1240, beginning in verse 4 through verse 6. I'm just going to go ahead and read it and make a few comments. The prophet John says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. 
and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, just a few observations. This passage is dealing with bodily resurrection. Specifically here, it's talking about those who we call tribulation martyrs or tribulation saints. Those who during the seven-year tribulation period refused the mark of the beast, right? They didn't take the mark on their forehead or their hand. And they were martyred for it. When Christ returns and establishes his kingdom, he will raise them from the dead, reuniting a glorified body with their soul. And they will reign with Jesus Christ. This is the first resurrection. That's what John tells us. It's also known as the resurrection of life or the resurrection to life. The resurrection to life, the resurrection of life. Jesus in John chapter 5, verse 28, 29 says, An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And will come forward, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. There it is. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Here in Revelation chapter 20, we come to understand that this resurrection to judgment actually occurs after a thousand year interruption period called the kingdom. The rest of the dead, verse 5, didn't come to life until the thousand years were completed. Do you see that? This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection because over these, the second death has no power. Look over to verse 14, same chapter. This is after the great white throne judgment of the wicked. And he says, And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. We have two deaths. Two resurrections. In this context here, the first death is is the physical death that you and I are familiar with. It is the separation of your physical body and your soul. Those who experience that first death, who are believing, will be resurrected in the first resurrection and they will reign with Christ. Those who were not believing at the time their body and soul were separated at death of the death that you and I know, will be resurrected a thousand years after the kingdom of Messiah. And they will face the second death, which he says is the lake of fire. First death and resurrection. Second death, resurrection unto judgment. Hang on to that thought. Flip to the left to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20, page 1152. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 20. 
page 1152. Paul's talking here about the resurrection of believers. And he says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. All in Adam, that's every single man, woman, and child, experience the first death, body and soul, separation. Jesus Christ is the first fruits. That is, he is the prototype of those who will experience the first resurrection where his body and soul are reunited. Fit to live in the presence of God. That's what Paul says. He's the first fruits. He is the prototype. You want to know what your resurrection body will look like? Look at the prototype. Under this thought, turn to the right. The first Thessalonians chapter four. Page 1183. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Page 1183. But we would not want you to be informed, uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that is, those who have experienced the first death, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. All those who are in Christ, he says, that is, all those who are, have made a faith commitment to Jesus Christ, they are attached to Christ, shorthand way of saying Christians. And at the return of Jesus Christ, the dead will rise, soul reunited with body. Those believers who are alive and remain, we're talking about the rapture here, will be instantaneously changed and we will be with the Lord forever. That is, we will join our prototype and participate in what is called the first resurrection, the resurrection unto life. That resurrection unto life has essentially three stages. It is Christ the prototype. It is the people of the the church of Jesus Christ that is coming at the rapture. And then it is the tribulation saints. They all partake in this first resurrection. And they are joined by one other group. They are joined by one other group. And that is the Old Testament believers. The Old Testament believers. Now to do this, I've got to turn you back to Daniel. Remember, I told you, this is all in that handout for you, so you can go back and check all this stuff later. Daniel chapter 12. Page 11, no, page 898. Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, page 898. Beginning in verse 1. Now at this time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. 
And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who was found written in the book, will be rescued. He's talking about the end of the tribulation, the second half. Time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation. The time of the intense persecution of the nation of Israel. The time following the breaking of the covenant of peace at the midpoint of the tribulation. And he says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. What Daniel says is that at the end, the end of the age, there's going to be a resurrection. Some unto life, some unto everlasting contempt. That is, unto judgment. The people of God operated under that understanding for a long time. That is, that there is a, a resurrection unto life for the righteous and unto judgment for the wicked. And their understanding of that was that that resurrection happened at the same time. You can see this in John chapter 11. Go to the Gospel of John, page 1074. John's Gospel, chapter 11, verses 23-24. Page 1074. John 11, 23-24. This is at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus said to her, your brother shall rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The general understanding of the people of God from Old Testament times, and you see this flowing even here into Jesus as he's speaking with this pious woman, Martha is that there's going to be a resurrection at the end, and I know my brother will rise then. What she does not know and cannot know is that there are going to be gaps of time between these resurrections. Based on Daniel 12, it would appear it's one resurrection into life and into judgment. What they cannot know is that actually there's a thousand years that separate the resurrection into life and the resurrection into judgment. That knowledge doesn't become available until Christ reveals it to the Apostle John and he records it for us in the book of Revelation. There's a gap. There's a time period. When Messiah returns, he establishes his kingdom. He resurrects those who were martyred during the tribulation. They enter in. The church has been raptured before the tribulation. They are already in, have been resurrected and given glorified bodies. They enter in. The Old Testament saints are resurrected at the same time as the tribulation martyrs, and they enter in. All in glorified bodies. Well, there's two more groups that go. Actually, five groups of people that enter into Messiah's kingdom. I have them for you here, four and five. I'm not going to... I'm not going to try to develop it for you. I'm just quickly. At the return of Messiah, there will be a remnant of the nation of Israel that will survive the persecution of the Antichrist, and they will be judged out, according to Ezekiel 20, out in the wilderness. They will pass under the shepherd's rod, and he will bring them into the bond of the covenant. They will enter into Messiah's kingdom in physical bodies just like yours and mine. Believing Jews. 
Beyond that, he will gather the nations, Matthew chapter 25, at what's called the sheep and the goat judgment. When he gathers the nations, the Gentiles, nations means Gentiles, he'll gather them together and he will judge them. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The sheep will enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And the goats will enter into the lake of fire. How do you become a sheep or a goat? You demonstrate whether you're a sheep or a goat by how you treated the least of these, my brothers, my brethren. Gentiles during the tribulation time will demonstrate their faith in Israel's Messiah by the way they treat the Jewish people. In the midst of the greatest Holocaust the world has ever known and will ever know, in which two-thirds of the nation of Israel are slaughtered in a period of less than seven years. Actually, about three and a half years. During that period of time, righteous Gentiles will demonstrate themselves to be that by their protection of and shielding of the Jews. Remember, you visited me in prison? You gave me something to drink when I was thirsty. You gave me food to eat when I was hungry. You took care of them in the midst of their greatest need. And according to James chapter 2, you show me your faith without your deeds and I will show you my faith by what? By my deeds. They're not saved because they treat them well. They treat them well because they are saved. And it demonstrates that reality. And thus they are entering into Messiah's kingdom. All right, let me review here really quick. <laughs> really quick. Two, two realities, two hard realities. Two hard realities that we have to be willing to face in order to do the necessary demolition so that we can begin to build in our own minds the glory of Messiah's kingdom. First, we need to understand that Messiah's kingdom has not yet come. It's not yet here. It's not here. And we delude ourselves to the, to, the, to the degree that we try to find satisfaction in this life that can only be provided by Messiah's kingdom. Secondly, when Christ reigns, he welcomes into his kingdom only those who have lived by faith down through the ages. Only the faithful ones. Folks, every, every journey begins with a first step. Every journey begins with a first step. This morning, if you are here, and as I've been talking to you, the Spirit of God has been, been working in you, and you've come to realize, yes, I know Christ, I believe He died for my sin, but, but when I evaluate my life, my priorities are messed up. I realize I'm seeking a kingdom here on earth that's it's an illusion and it's vanity. It's I'm never going to find it. And it's time to get back on the track. It's time to stop chasing the wind. It's time to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive you for that sin and to rekindle the flame in your heart for him. But for others, for others, the Spirit of God is talking to you now for the first time. 
first time this morning, here, right now. You supply this truth to your heart and you realize that if Messiah came today to establish his kingdom, I'm going to be on the outside. I'm going to be on the outside. As I said, every journey begins with the first step. Today's the day. Today is the day. Right here, right now, where you are. Just close your eyes. And you call out to Jesus Christ to save you. To save you. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My load is light. I'm going to pray, and then Ron's going to come up, and we're going to sing a, a glorious song, a glorious song about Victory in Messiah's kingdom. Beloved, I hope you can sing this song with all your heart. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord, your word wounds and your word heals. And our Father, today, there's been some wounding going on. We have been confronted, our Father, in our own complacency. We have been confronted with the reality that we often have our priorities messed up. That we're chasing an illusion, a mirage, a figment of our own imagination. The harder we chase it and the tighter we cling to it, the less we have of it. Lord, there is no satisfaction in this life. So I pray as your word has wounded us that at the same time it lays us open to be healed. For like the father who raced towards his prodigal son to embrace him, our father, you raced towards us in your grace. There's room at the cross for all of us. Whether it be believers who have messed up their priorities, or whether it be someone here this morning, Father, who has, has never begun the life of faith, never begun that journey together. May you heal and, and draw for your name's sake. Oh, Lord, let us sing with all our hearts the celebration of the victory that Christ has won. Amen.